On occasion, the media breathlessly reports the story of a mother who egregiously mistreats her children. We're subjected to the sickening account of motherly neglect, perhaps it's abuse, and even on occasion it's murder. Flying under the media's radar are more common and widespread displays of parental folly and indiscretion. Moms who render physical care to their children commonly contribute little to their children's moral development and sense of accountability. And so we give thanks as a Christian church. We rejoice and thank God for mothers who tirelessly invest in their children's spiritual well-being and moral accountability. That is a gift. It is not common. It is the mercy of God, and we give thanks. Blessed is that child whose mother teaches right from wrong, in word and in deed, and who skillfully creates an environment of moral accountability in the home. This is indeed a godlike quality. The church of Jesus Christ, as we know, is a spiritual family, and God our Father longs for the household of faith to be a place of spiritual nurture and accountability. As our Father, as His family, it is no different here. As we enter the closing chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians, we see this family emphasis. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 begins with the word brothers. Speaking of the family of God. Those who are united together in Christ as a body of believers. Brothers. You notice it there in 6.1. And then looking down at the very end of chapter 6 and verse 10. At the end of verse 10, a reference to the household of faith. So this section of Scripture holds together around this theme of the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ within the household of faith. It is a theme with which we are very familiar and it is a household of faith, which is very fitting within the context of the book of Galatians. Remember chapter 2 and verse 16, the theme of this book, we might say. We know, writes Paul, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Chapter 3 and verse 11. In 3.11 he says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. It's no accident then that Paul, as he comes to this very practical section of the book of Galatians, speaks of a household of faith. We are a family of God. We are a family of faith in Christ. And it is our that bond in Christ that draws us together and that unites us as the family of God. So as Paul begins to bring this book to a close, he offers some practical characteristics that should mark the environment of the household of faith. A brothers and sisters united in the body of Christ what should that look like? Now, if we asked godly mothers and fathers to provide 
a 200-word essay on the environment that they're striving to create in their homes. You have 200 words. You can write this out. Here's what we're aiming at. Here's the environment we hope to see develop in our home. Obviously, not one of these essays would be complete. They would just be representative of some of the themes and the ideas. And so it is before us here. Verses 1 through 10 of chapter 6 are not exhaustive in, des- in describing the right environment of a faithful and healthy local church. They do, however, provide a clear and edifying picture of a local church environment that pleases the Lord. What does the Spirit-led household of faith look like? We look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 6. And we see the first principle here. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. The Spirit-led household of faith restores sinners, simply said. Now let's think on that for a moment. Let's take that to heart. It's a place where sinners are restored. This is where brothers, sisters, believers in Christ within the assembly are restored. It says anyone here, but I think that's qualified by the word brothers. Paul refers to any member of the local church within the household of faith. So a member of the flock fails to, let's take it in context, fails to keep in step with the Spirit. Gets caught up in sin. When this happens, it will trigger a certain response in a healthy local church. What is that response? We see a member of the household caught in sin, entrapped in sin, struggling with the sin habit or with a pattern of sin in their life. The response in a healthy church is not gossip. We talk about that person to one another privately, behind their back. That's not the response. It is not calloused, vindictive accusation. How could you? You're terrible. We can't believe this. It's not the response. It is not embarrassed avoidance. So common in context of Western individualism. That's their business, not mine. That's not the response of a healthy church. Can we take this to heart yet again? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should what? Restore. Restore. The Greek word was used in the ancient context of setting a bone that had broken. Mending ripped fishing nets or rebuilding a broken wall. When a member of God's family is overtaken by a sin, Eden Baptist Church is called by God to restore that member to a right relationship with God. That's the response. We must work to patch them up. We must work to set them straight. We must work to mend their lives so that they are restored to fellowship with God and fellowship with His people. Going back to chapter 5 and verse 13, 
We are not to use our freedom in Christ as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather, what are we to do? To love and to serve one another. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the environment that we are to pursue. And when a member of God's family is overtaken by sin, love responds by seeking the good of that member, not looking the other way and not lashing out. Not contributing to the problem by being vindictive and harsh and critical. But not contributing to the problem by ignoring it either. It is to restore. Who is to do this work? Those who are spiritual among you. That's not the spiritual elite. That is not a reference to the elders of the church, for instance. That is not a reference to a certain group of people who are really known to be special in their walk with God. In the context of this book, chapter 3 and verse 3, we are given life in the Spirit. Chapter 5 and verse 16, we are all to walk by the Spirit. Chapter 5 and verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, and we do, we are alive in the Spirit of God. Not by works of the flesh, but by the redemptive power of God. We walk in the Spirit as an assembly. Those people who know Christ as Savior, who are washed clean by His Spirit, You are the ones who are to restore the one caught in sin. So all believers in the local church who are not entrapped in sin are to work to be aware and to restore the one who is caught. Now I think there's two qualifiers here in verse 1 for us. Again, it's not exhaustive. But he says, in a spirit of gentleness, number one, and I, I would translate the Greek text, not keep as an imperative, but as a participle, keeping watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So first of all, we're to do this in a spirit of gentleness. Not angry outbursts, not intimidation, not threatening, not pride. But gentleness, with a gentle spirit. A reasonable, soft-spoken, winsome, humble words of rebuke and correction. Now you think we have our medical world today, but go back in that ancient world and somebody has a leg bone that has, it's like at a 90 degree angle. It has broken badly and you're sitting there looking at this leg. Let's say that you're out in a remote area and it's you and this person with the broken leg and that's it. What are you going to do? Well, you can let that leg just be there and just say, I'm not going to deal with it, not going to touch that leg. It's going to be at a 90 degree angle for the rest of this person's life and they are going to be a cripple. They're going to have to walk with a crutch the rest of their life, have this hideous leg to look at. Or you can say, I'm not a doctor. This doesn't feel comfortable. I don't like this, but that leg's got to go straight. And I may not get it perfect, but i got to get that bone back straightened up to be straight. i got to set it right. And then that person has a chance of healing and walking again. You do that gently. You put forth the amount of effort that's necessary to get the leg put back into position. As much pressure as is necessary, but as gentle as possible. And I think that's a good guide for us. We see someone caught in sin within our assembly. As much pressure as necessary, 
as gentle as possible. With a spirit of gentleness, we encourage winsomely to bring that person back into a right relationship with God and with the body of Christ. The second qualifier is keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. A participle modifying the restoration process. When we confront a member caught in sin, we must do so with a spirit of humility, knowing that we too are sinners, first of all. But also we may be tempted with pride. We may be even be sucked into the same vortex of sin as this one whom we are confronting. We need to be watchful of this. Sometimes getting close to sin is tempting and draws us into that temptation. Or, again, may tempt us to pride. So in any event, the restoration should be gentle. It should be humble. It should be decisive. Mano Simon's 16th century Anabaptist said this so well. We do not want to expel any, but rather to receive. Not to amputate, but rather to heal. Not to discard, but rather to win back. Not to grieve, but rather to comfort. Not to condemn, but rather to save. That's the environment. That's the spirit. That's how we deal with sin when a member is caught in it. The New Testament provides a fuller picture of the church discipline process. This is not a full picture by any means. It includes how we are and are not to relate to a believer who remains unrepentant, who has been removed from the context of the local church as a member in full standing. The Bible fleshes this out. It's not material that many churches are very familiar with. But it's there, and it's Jesus' vision for His church, and this is His house. It's not ours. And avoiding sin within the household of God is a failure of stewardship on the part of all of God's people. Now here, the emphasis falls on one who is essentially surprised by sin, who falls into sin almost unwittingly. We won't take more time to expand the idea past the abbreviated terms that we find here, but we should pause to consider this fact. It is a reality in our world. The number of churches willing to actually honor this are few. It's just not something that happens. To correct a believer in sin. To restore a sinning member. It's rare. May God grant us the grace to create the kind of environment that Christ envisions for His church. Whether it is popular or not, whether it is easy or not, may we labor together as an assembly pleading that God would grant us the grace to grow in our skill in restoring erring members to a right relationship with God. This is His call on our life. This is how He wants His house to work. Gently, lovingly, graciously, with whatever pressure is necessary to bring one to a right relationship with the Lord. This is Christ's church. It's His household. And this is His call. Secondly, we find here that a spirit-led church bears one another's burdens. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now there's a question that arises. What's the relationship of this command, verse 2, to verse 1? 
There's considerable debate on this question. And the issue really carries through verses 1 through 10. My view, and it's, it's probably not a, a, a majority view, but I think it's best to read this passage as a series of loosely related bullet points, not as two sustained arguments. So here's just briefly, we won't get into this long, but some would take verse 1 as a controlling theme to drive right through verse 5. So everything's about restoring the lost the sinner. Then in verse 6, let who one who is taught in the word, that this compensation of those who teach the word is the theme now that you carry through verse 10. This somewhat changes the interpretation or affects the interpretation of the passage. I see this more as loose bullet points, all related, but really not meant to be a sustained argument in verses 1 through 5 and another sustained argument in verses 6 through 10. And so you'll see on the outline that there's several points rather than just two, and that does affect the interpretation. You can follow any of that, we're still safe. We're looking at these verses and we're just taking them one at a time and looking at the principle that is there. And I think it'll make sense. But Taken more as loose bullet points, I see bearing one another's burdens in verse 2 is very applicable to verse 1 and restoring those who are in sin. But I think it is to be applied much more widely and generally. We are, as an assembly, to learn to bear one another's burdens, simply said. The healthy, spiritually faithful local church forms a community in which we actively think about one another's needs. The local church is to be a community that shares burdens, and we are to see ourselves as involved in that context, bearing one another's burdens. They may be financial. We may have members who are dealing with grief or illness, or there may be responsibilities that they have providentially that are above what they can bear on their own. It may even be Bearing the burden of celebration at times. There's a, there's a labor there. There's a work there. And so we share together the burdens. Now sometimes this work is very serious, such as times of death and times of illness. And bearing one another's burdens involves compassion and thoughtfulness. And trying to speak words of grace that are appropriate in difficult situations. There's other times it's much more lighthearted. I think of this recently with our, our parents' night out. For those of you who don't know what that is, our young adults, single adults, young married couples without children, here at this building, open up an evening where those with, with young children can bring them to this place and mom and dad can have a break from parenting for a brief time and go out on a date or run errands or, I don't know, go take a nap or something. I don't know what they do. This is wonderful. This is bearing burdens. Kids, can I say it? Moms, they'll probably all support me. They're a burden. They're a wonderful burden, but they're a weight. It is involved to take care of kids. And so a relief from that burden. Sometimes it's very lighthearted and joyful this way. I I just love to see these little kids coming and people caring for them while moms and dads can take a break. We need to be thoughtful along these lines. How can we lift the weight? How can we care for one another? In this event, our young adults have defined a way to do that that's very encouraging. 
And the goal in bearing burdens, whether they are heavy or whether they are joyful burdens that we bear, is to fulfill the law of Christ. I think we should take this as a future tense, that we will then fulfill the law of Christ. Notice chapter 5 and verse 13 again. We are to serve one another through love. The whole law is fulfilled in one word, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. United to Christ by faith, we identify with Jesus who epitomized love by living a life of service and dying in our place. So we fulfill the law of Christ in contrast to the law of Moses by bearing one another's burdens in loving sacrifice in Jesus' name, in Jesus' power. So rather than seeking circumcision and observing days and having food restrictions and the like and following the Mosaic law in that way, we have now been freed and liberated in Christ as mature followers of Jesus to live in the freedom of the law of love. To bear one another's burdens in love is to fulfill this law of Christ. And so we are to be an environment. We are to be a household where we pour out our lives for one another. Thirdly, the Spirit-led household of faith displays proper self-assessment. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The for if is very problematic. The connection to verse 2 is not clear. Paul may leapfrog back to chapter 5 and verse 26, and that would make fairly good sense. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. wouldn't be the first time that Paul kind of jumps back to a thought that he's presented earlier, and that may be the case here. But he says, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Taken just at its, at its own, on its own, again, as something of a bullet point here, verses 3 through 5 form a single idea. There is a danger of thinking too highly of ourselves, corporately and here individually. We should render proper self-judgment, not think we have all the answers, and not think that we're someone special. That's the environment that should prevail in the assembly. Verse 5, connecting to that theme down through verse 5, but let, verse 4, let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. Let's add this to the list of statements Paul makes that are really confusing. What does he mean by this? He has an idea in his mind, but he speaks an outline. And it's a little bit tough to come back and grasp what he's saying as he's talking about comparing with others. I'm not going to go into great detail about how to work through this problem, nor do I have absolute confidence that I have it. But I think Paul is saying, and certainly we can support this from other texts, we must learn to test the quality of our works. But we don't do that by comparing with others. First, we cannot live on autopilot. We must learn to render accurate self-assessment by seeing our works as God sees them. Now there's a balance here. And some Christians are bent one way over the other and an imbalance is very easy. There are those who just don't pay any attention to how they're living. And there are those that obsess over it. 
And the balance in between, we need to be developing the capacity to see our sin and our struggle and to define it for what it is. One of the beauties of meeting in small groups to confess our sins to one another. There's a skill in learning to put my life under the light of God's Word and the conviction of the Spirit and to announce where I fall short. To identify it. That's one aspect here. It's vital because each will have to bear his own load. Possibly, likely, could I say, that is a reference to final judgment. So we must learn to render accurate self-assessment because one day we will stand alone before God as judge. Paul has stressed that we must keep in step with the Spirit and evidence the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Here he stresses that we must learn to rightly assess that fruit and its evidence in our daily lives. Now, secondly, such assessment cannot be achieved by comparing ourselves with others. So I need to learn to see who am I, where are my struggles, where do I not line up with the Word of God, but I don't do that by comparing with others. Well, I'm not as much a gossip as she is. So I'm pretty good. I'm certainly a more faithful witness for Christ than he is. I'm, well, I may not be obedient to my parents all the time, but I'm way better than that person. That's just foolishness, right? We, we recognize that. So let's learn to apply that in more subtle situations. I don't judge myself by comparing myself with others. I judge myself by trying to see my own heart the way God sees it because one day I'll bear my own load. I will stand before God in judgment on my own. Ultimately and thankfully in that we stand robed in the righteousness of Christ. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. But we are not going to stand in judgment next to anyone else. We will not prove our faithfulness to God by comparing ourselves with others. We will all bear our own load. We will all be held accountable for our own sin. We will all be commended for our own works before the Lord. Again, Paul stresses and has stressed here that salvation is by faith alone in the work of Christ. But our deeds do bear witness. They bear evidence to the fact that we do know the Lord. And so our works are very crucial. So we must grow in our ability to detect sin in our own hearts and render proper assessment of the fruit that God is producing in our lives. So there is a corporate sense of responsibility to one another, but there's also a sense in which we learn how to be an individual. And we recognize that I can't come under the convicting word of God within the assembly and point to somebody else who's not being faithful. I can't hear even the command, bear one another's burdens and think about all the people who don't see my burden and aren't helping me. I need to assess myself before God. Do I bear the burdens of others? Am I faithful before His call? Learning to display proper self-assessment. The Spirit-led household of faith Number four, honors the teaching of God's Word. I think that's the overall principle here of verse six. Verse six, let the one who is taught the Word share all good things with the one who teaches. The New Testament church is to be a place where God's Word is routinely and faithfully taught. 
We live by hearing the word of the Lord. When an assembly rightly values the teaching of God's word, that assembly will designate and will compensate certain teachers of the word. I say some teachers of the word. Because in one sense, we are all teachers of God's Word. We just talked to several parents here together as a congregation this morning, didn't we? They're teachers of God's Word to their children. We're all teachers of God's Word. But the focus here is almost certainly on those who occupy an official teaching office within the assembly. To share all good things, this phrase is used elsewhere by Paul to speak of compensation And all good things is used elsewhere in reference to the necessities of life. Now the people, the form, and the degree of compensation are not defined here at all. The cultural background of that day and ours is quite distinct in this regard. But we can gain the basic principle. The teaching ministry of the local church should be one in which the congregation invests. It should be important to them. It should be important enough that they give to see that work go on and to be in good hands. You say, well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? In our setting, in the history of this church, certainly, Rich and I a couple of weeks ago were talking to a few pastors who didn't want this job. One church didn't really care to pay them to teach, and another church wanted to pay the pastor to teach more accurately and faithfully, and he didn't want to do it. Now, there's an environment, and it's we're seeking to minister and seeking to influence people, but we need to understand there are churches that don't get this at all. They don't understand that valuing the teaching, the accurate teaching and development of Scripture systematically is something we are to support financially. It doesn't have to be. The Apostle Paul set this aside at times in his ministry. But there's just a basic principle here that this is the kind of environment that the church is to be. A place that so honors the Word of God that there is financial compensation to make sure that it is handled accurately and as effectively as possible, with all qualifiers staked. There's no perfect teacher, there's no perfect sermon or lesson, but there is to be a church that says this is important, and so we invest in it. That's what Paul is saying here. The one who's taught in the Word, sharing good things, all necessities with the one who teaches. A lot of qualifiers, much to be filled in between the blanks, and much to be applied cross-culturally and cross across the timeline of history, but this is a significant principle. Number five, the Spirit-led household of faith sows to the Spirit, not to the flesh. Verse seven, do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Connected to giving, verse six, yes, but again, I take as a loose bullet point as much larger principle. The larger principle is God is not mocked. You're not going to fool Him. We reap what we sow. That is, the actions, the attitudes of our life are going to have consequences down the road. Qualification here in verse 8 is for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Here's what I mean. 
says Paul. If, if we sow in this way, God will not be mocked. We will reap negative things. We will reap ultimately judgment. Parallel to chapter 5 and verse 21, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who sow to their own flesh will be corrupted. They will not inherit the kingdom of God, 521. It speaks of eternal judgment. In contrast, verse 8, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So corruption and eternal life in stark contrast here. Corruption is not a Christian who gets into heaven and God figures things out up there. Corruption is the one who doesn't inherit the kingdom of God. And the contrast is that the one who sows to the Spirit reaps eternal life. That's the consequence. Good works are not, let's remember, not the condition of eternal life. I don't earn eternal life. I'm not saved because of my good works. That is by grace alone that I am saved. However, when that grace visits my life, when the Spirit of God comes, washes me clean and indwells me, there will be evidences of fruit in my life. Every one of us sows to the flesh. Every one of us is tempted that way. But in the overall display of our lives, those who know Christ as Savior, those who have been Uh, justified by His righteousness, live out a life that is faithful and they display the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. And so, he says, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Again, not to earn eternal life, but as a display of it. Verse 9 And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. You can get weary in doing good. He's assuming that. The household of faith is to be one in which we spur one another on to love and good deeds. We need one another's encouragement. We need one another's presence. We're to nurture an environment in which we pursue good together and encourage each other to persevere to the end. And what is our hope? It's God's promise. We will reap if we do not give up. If we do not fall away from the faith, fall away from the living God, and fail to walk with God to the end. If we don't do that, we will reap the good that we sow. It's for this end that God has called us. It will all be of grace. It will all be His gift. But it will be our joy to reap the fruit of a life of righteousness. So we have to ask ourselves, what seeds are we sowing? What seeds are you sowing? What seeds are you sowing in word? The thoughts that course through your mind every day. The habits, the actions, the relationships with others. Are you doing good? Are you sowing seeds of righteousness? This is going to be directly connected to the consequences of your life. If you are sowing to the flesh self-centeredness, earthly pleasures, idols that take the place of God, you will reap corruption ultimately. So it's vital for all of us to take careful thought. God will not be mocked. If we're growing in Christ, we will receive a weight of glory beyond comprehension. But if we are sowing to the flesh, 
verses 19 through 21 of chapter 5, then we're lurching toward hell. We need to repent and turn. Now, please understand, it would be absolutely ridiculous to go from here saying that the point is, I've got to be a good person, period. What I have to do is walk in faith and trust in the Lord, in His provision, in His grace, but I've got to want to do what is good, and I need to practice that in the power of the Spirit of God. Remember last week, walking in the Spirit with a sense of the presence of Christ going with me everywhere so that it influences my attitudes, the thoughts that go through my mind, my actions, my relationships, my goals, that which I worship. I'm sowing what is good. And in our individualistic world, let me stress again, you need the local church. I need the local church. It is absolutely vital that we have one another's influence for what is good and for what is right, to be encouraged that way, to think the truth. And we need the local church, let's go back to chapter 6 and verse 1, to hold us accountable. It is the church the body of Christ that Jesus puts in our life as an insurance policy for eternal life. To call us to correction, to restore us when we walk offline. That's His mercy. That's the environment that He desires for us to develop. And with a somewhat concluding thought, He says in verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We start there with priority, doing good to those who are part of the family of God. But then even reaching beyond them, we are to do good to everyone as we find opportunity. We are to be sowing seeds of righteousness and goodness in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our places of employment, and certainly here in this neighborhood and in this congregation. Doing what is good. Not to earn our salvation. Not to congratulate ourselves but to say this is the life to which Christ has called us. He has changed us from sowing seeds of unrighteousness to sowing seeds of goodness. This is His mercy. This is our life. And we hold each other accountable to it within this assembly. Not as do-gooders, but as those who are fulfilling the law of Christ because He truly has saved us. I wonder to what degree... Are these environmental principles characteristic of our life together as a church? Is this who we are? Is this how we relate to one another? Is this a spiritual household that restores sinners? That bears one another's burdens? That displays proper self-assessment? Not comparisons with others in pride but knows that we'll face God, that honors the teaching of God's Word and is willing to invest in that work here and throughout the world, that sows to the Spirit, not to the flesh, that our gatherings together are for good. Remember what he said in 5.15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Our gatherings together can actually sow to the flesh. Is this who we are? Only God can enable us to nurture such an environment. It's not within us, in our mind. It's not within our moral capacities. We must first recognize the value of such mutual accountability and personal responsibility. 
And then we must give thanks for the wisdom and love of our Heavenly Father to steer us in these green pastures. This is His grace to us as an assembly. And then we must, of course, respond in active faith and obedience as an assembly. If you're not part of a faithful, healthy, local church, you're missing a very critical component in the walk of the believer. I encourage you, identify with the body of Christ. This is Christ's revealed will, and you're not going to do better by going your own way. But there may be some here among us today, you're not yet identified with Christ. You don't see Him as your life. You don't see yourself as crucified with Christ and risen with Him. He's not your identity. I would call you to turn from your sin because you are sowing to the flesh. And as you sow to the flesh, this is not going to reap anything good. Christ is the Lord. He is the defeater of death. He is the one who has paid the penalty of sin. He is the risen Lord who reigns from heaven's throne and will hold all of us accountable. We will stand before a judge who loves us and who has saved us or we will stand before a judge that we have rejected. What will it be for you? Where are you headed? What seeds are you sowing? Today may be the day of salvation. Indeed it is. Turn from your sin. Embrace Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, and as the center of your life. You have nothing to lose. You have everything to gain. Indeed, it is called here in this text, eternal life. Trust in that life. Come to Him. Allow us to be of counsel and help to you today before you leave. Let's bow for prayer. We give thanks, our Lord, our Savior, our Master and King, for your saving power, for your victory over death, and for the life of the body of Christ. Help us now to stand before you corporately in prayer, but individually bearing our own load. And I pray that we'd be able to stand before you with a sense of conviction, but with a sense of hope that you are indeed working in and through us that which is good. You did not save your people merely to get them to heaven. You saved us to transform us here and now. And I pray that that transformational work would be taking place as we, as members of this body, work together and strive together to create an environment of proper accountability and gracious and gentle persuasion to do what is right and good. May we stimulate one another to love and good deeds. I plead that you will allow this word of the Lord from this text of Scripture to deepen and mature and strengthen this church. I pray for the churches in this area in this region, in this world, who strive to so honor You, produce within these fellowships, within these bodies, a faithfulness to do what is right in the name of Christ in this world. 
And for those who know not Christ as Savior, we plead that you would open their eyes to see what they cannot see in their own strength and to trust Christ as Lord and Savior today. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.